Welcome to episode 8 of Napava Coffee House, hosted by Lawrence Tu. As many of you know, our host Larry is an experienced C-suite executive whose former roles include serving as the Chief Legal Officer or General Counsel for CBS Corporation, Dell, and NBC Universal. My name is Genevieve Fantono, I'm in the Harvard Law School class of 2022, and I'm producing Napaba Coffee House as part of my student fellowship project with the Harvard Law School Center on the Legal Profession. Our guest for today is Caroline Tsai, Chief Legal Officer for FIS. FIS is a fintech company which provides technology solutions to merchants, banks, and capital markets firms. So this ranges from uh, enabling merchants to receive electronic payments, uh, such as contactless card and mobile wallet, as well as selling uh, transaction processing software to financial institutions and banks. Prior to her current role at FIS, Caroline also served as Chief Legal Officer at Western Union. She also held uh, in-house roles at BMO Financial Group and the Bank of America. Caroline shares a ton of great insights in this episode. And as usual, I'll spend a couple of moments to highlight one to two things that really stood out to me. So first, I really, really love this idea around practicing leadership regardless of your formal role or title. So there's this really great discussion in this episode around what to do if you find yourself in a role that may be scoped somewhat narrowly. How then do you lean in both within and outside of your organization um, in order to raise your visibility um, and show off your leadership potential? Another idea that I really loved had to do with, um, you know, being brave enough to turn down a promotion if you know that that's not a fit for you. So earlier on in Caroline's career, she was offered a promotion, but she would have had to give up coverage over, you know, a bucket of work that, you know, she really loved and really energized her and intellectually stimulated her. And so she said no. And I thought that that just took a lot of, you know, courage and self-awareness. And I think that these two insights, uh, that leadership um, is an activity, not a title, and you gotta be self-aware enough to be able to say no to a promotion and title if it's not the right fit, um, are very interesting uh, and very meaningful because my guess is that 99% of uh, the audience for Napaba Coffee House are not general counsels or uh, chief legal officers. You know, there's quite a limited uh, pool of them. And I think that, you know, most of us uh, who are watching this uh, are probably, you know, still climbing up the ranks in terms of formal authority. So I think that these insights uh, around title and leadership are actually very, very interesting. All right, so those were my main takeaways. As usual, we want to hear what some of your main takeaways were. So uh, leave a comment below. We can't wait to read them. All right, without further ado, here is Larry and Caroline. Let me start by welcoming you, Caroline, to the Nepal Coffee House. We are very lucky to have you today, given that this comes at a very busy time for you. You have just started a brand new, exciting general counsel job. You're no doubt juggling personal, professional, and family obligations and responsibilities. And you're logging lots of miles flying back and forth from your home in Denver to your new job in Jacksonville, Florida. And all of this, of course, happening even while we're still living through the COVID pandemic. So a lot on your plate. A big thank you for taking time out of your incredibly busy schedule to be with us today. Thank you for having me, Larry. So Carolyn, let's start at the beginning uh, of your life story. I know you were born in Brazil, and when you were five, your family um, uh, immigrated to the U.S., um, and then you grew up in Brooklyn and Queens. So tell us about something about those early years and, and the transitions that you had to go through. 
Sure. So I, I always think back to the early years and I, I think your early years certainly are very formative in your life journey. Uh, when I think back to Brazil, um, the memories are actually um, all, all revolve around animals in large part because I lived on a chicken farm and um, we lived on a chicken farm until about a year before we moved to the U.S. We lived in Rio. I think in the 70s growing up, I still remember learning about the melting pot. And there is this concept that you would actually all melt in, um, which in retrospect, when you think about that concept in the 70s, what an interesting way to grow up in, as an immigrant in Queens, New York, because you're essentially being taught to melt and kind of lose your yourself, right? <laughs> and blend in. So Caroline, what was your first language? Um, and when you came to the um, US, did you speak English? So I, I spoke spoke a combination of Portuguese and Chinese. And my parents had lived in Brazil for about 15 years, my grandparents on both sides, uh, over 20 years. And when we arrived in the US, my parents were very concerned about keeping the Mandarin Chinese and learning English. So they essentially stopped speaking Portuguese to us other than I still remember every birthday, we would sing happy birthday in Portuguese, Chinese, and English. And the fun part was, is always the same song. <laughs> and how's your Portuguese now? I never disclose how much I understand, although I had a coworker at Western Union early days. And I remember we went to a party and he was talking to his wife because he's from Brazil. And I just started laughing. He's like, oh my gosh, you understand more Portuguese than you disclose. And I said, yep. Don't know anything, just, uh, but it's helpful. Now, from there, I gather you, you went to uh, Benjamin Cardozo High School in Bayside, New York, which I gather is a very high-powered, but also in, in extremely diverse community. Yeah, I, I, was, I was really lucky to grow up in Queens because Benjamin Cardozo High School was the neighborhood school that I was able to get zoned in on. And many of the Asian-American students growing up, they actually chose after getting into Stuyvesant or Bronx Science or Brooklyn Tech to uh, not have the commute into the city or the Bronx or Brooklyn and, and go to Benjamin Cardozo High School. But it's a very diverse school, probably 40% uh, diversity of all stripes. And um, you know, I grew up with, uh, my best friends were actually um, either Asian-American or Jewish-American. and, and um, it was really fun. My, my neighborhood, I think about just our summer days playing stickball and all the families were Italian, Chinese, or Jewish American. Now, I understand that your choice of law as a career, which you uh, ended up heading down the path toward, uh, was an act of disobedience within the family. So, so tell <laughs> or, us about that a little bit. Probably. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you can probably relate to this, Larry, but I think uh, Asian American parents, they, they only have a couple of concepts of what makes sense in terms of career. And to add to that, when I chose to go to college, I dreamed, literally dreamed of going to college where I could sit on a campus. I had this vision of reading college books sitting under a tree. And so I chose Michigan, never even having set foot on campus. And then when I told my parents I wanted to go to Michigan, they thought, and they were very upset, they thought I was going to the West Coast. So I had to explain, no, this is really the Midwest. I'm not going to the West Coast. Um, and I started off pre-med, um, uh, as many Asian American students do. 
And when I took my first political science class, I just fell in love with um, all things poli-sci. I actually dreamed of becoming a diplomat. And I thought that maybe the name of your high school might have inspired you to go to the <laughs> So, uh, and what was your parents' reaction to your choice of law as a career? They were supportive? They were, they were worried. skeptical? Very they were worried. worried about me yeah. because I was actually very, very shy in high school, very, very shy in um, undergrad. In fact, if you, if a professor called on me, even when I was a senior, um, I would, my voice would shake, tears would come into my eyes. Uh, and they were concerned because they they thought of lawyers as, you know, the lawyers you see in L.A. law back in the day. Right. And they had never actually met an Asian-American, let alone a Chinese female lawyer. And they said, are you sure that's a good idea? And do they exist? And they were worried about me. Uh, but they gave me the support because they could tell I absolutely loved it. Uh, and they just said, you know, let's think about it. Do you think that's that's the right career? Well, so uh, let's talk about your early legal career. You began your life in a law firm, as many of us did. You were there for, I think, six years. Uh, I know you eventually chose to go off in a different direction. Um, but but talk about what you think law firms do best. And mm -hmm. if you were to advise young attorneys starting their careers in law firms, what they should do to get the most out of that experience, whether or not that ends up being their ultimate career. Good question. I think law firms do an incredible job teaching you the fundamentals of, of being a good lawyer, whether you're going into litigation, antitrust, or, or transactional work. You do need that in early days when you graduate law school, you really do need to take time to really learn the basics and fundamentals of being a good lawyer, no matter what practice area. But I truly believe that when you go in-house, that's when you start uh, learning leadership skills, learning how to uh, manage uh, manage people and really bring along your talent. I understand that when you started your legal career, you also started your family. So that must have been quite a juggle in those early years. So talk a little bit about what you can recall from, uh, from those years about that issue. <laughs> um, so my first... Uh, uh, baby arrived right after I graduated law school. I still remember walking across the stage in law school and my friends were all worried I was actually going to deliver uh, somehow on, while walking across stage because we were in DC and it was like 98 degrees and I, I, I was feeling faint and they said, please don't go into labor while getting your, your, your diploma. Anyway, so I ended up actually um, uh, having to study for the bar exam, the New York bar exam at home without Barbary, um, and then asking Jones Day for a delayed start because I uh, found out I was expecting uh, after I'd accepted um, you know, my, my start date at Jones Day. And so I started first week in November um, and Max was three months old. Um, and I remember vividly showing up late because I was the last uh, first year associate to start the New York bar exam was coming in the results that week and the partner saying, well, it's okay, Caroline, if you failed, it's okay because we understand you had just had a child. And it was quite, it was quite hectic. And I remember being so worried that I was a new mom. I had to prove myself. And what if I failed the bar exam? All, all bets were off. So it worked out. I did not fail the bar exam. 
<laughs> I just started working and they were insane hours. Um, at the time, deal volume was you would spend 12 hours a day negotiating, take a break, and, and then essentially spend all night drafting the contracts. And I would go home for one or two hours sleep and come back for more. Um, so the only way I survived is because my parents and my mother-in-law came and rotated living with us. And this is while my husband was doing 36-hour shifts training to be a doctor. <laughs> what a time. So um, did you, um, during that period, think about being a law partner as a possible career path for yourself? I mean, did you yeah. enjoy it enough and see enough there that that was actually a plausible path for you? Yes, with the only caveat, I, I, I was always thinking as I looked at my uh, the partner who is still my closest mentor and friend through all these years, I would always look at him and say, wow, you're a partner and you're essentially here with me at 3 a.m. in the morning. Does it get any better <laughs> in terms of work-life balance? Now, was that him or was that you know, being a partner in a law firm or some combination of the two? I think, think? it's a combination of both, yeah. meeting the client expectations. And he was the type of guy that wanted to be in, in with his team. Um, but as I looked around at all the other law firm partners, uh, there was that question of work-life balance and whether um, it was kind of a long-term uh, goal I wanted um, it, it seemed uh, to be the path that made sense because I was at a law firm. And at the time, I didn't have any understanding of what it meant to be in a law department. Yeah. So six years later, you landed at Bank of America. So, so how did that come about? Did somebody come knocking on your door? Did you seek it out? You know, what actually transpired? Uh, my client uh, called, but it was actually Bank of America, a different division investment banking. They were not my clients. They were based in Charlotte. The Bank of the, uh, America client that I worked with were based in New York. And so they called and said that there was this opportunity and it required a move to Charlotte, North Carolina. Hmm. <laughs> and, and was that something uh, that you thought long and hard about? Did you jump at it immediately? What was, what, how did you react to that? My reaction uh, was actually very honest. Uh, and my husband couldn't believe I said this to my client. I said, wait, is this job not in New York? It's in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm, I'm, I'm from the East Coast. I would never move south of Virginia. Thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> so, so, you, so you were incredibly open-minded about that opportunity. I was. In retrospect, I can't believe I said that because it, it was actually a very quick um, interview process, and I loved the opportunity. And uh, I will say Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, was an amazing place to live. And to my surprise, it was probably the most diverse neighborhood I've actually ever lived in the US because there were so many uh, families that came from all over the globe. And it was actually the, it is the second largest financial services city in the US. And so it was a lesson to me uh, coming from the East Coast to never assume <laughs> what you don't know about. It. And go for an adventure and, and you'll be pleasantly surprised. So somehow they took your no in stride and just kept coming after you. It sounds they did. Like. <laughs> now you went in there as, as I guess what we call a sole contributor, right? You went in there, you weren't the manager of anybody and that's how you began your, your in-house career. And 
But you expanded upon that and you started taking on sort of more complex assignments, uh, even as a non-manager. So talk about how, if you were advising a young lawyer or a mid-career lawyer in, in an in-house department, how they can expand their experiences mm-hmm. without necessarily becoming a people manager or getting a promotion, Absolutely. which is sometimes hard to do. Yeah. When I was hired, not only was I hired just as an individual contributor, but it was a very specific, narrow job um, at B of A. Um, At B of A, they had a a legal team of almost 750 lawyers uh, globally. And this was in capital markets investment banking. So it was a very specific role for fixed income. And within that, I was underwriters counsel. And um, the reason why I was able to expand was I got lucky because between the time I started and shortly thereafter, B of A started one of five huge acquisitions. And so they were looking for, um, you know, there were a lot of integration and um, issues to navigate for five significant acquisitions. So I just raised my hand uh, when the opportunity came up to say, hey, I'm happy to do X, Y, and Z, notwithstanding the fact that I have absolutely no experience here uh, in integrating, let's say, a new credit card bank. Um, So my advice to um, those who are interested is never lose sight of the job you're hired for. Uh, And that's what I find time to time when I coach and mentor new team members. They're so excited about getting to the next step and broadening their experience. Sometimes they forget to actually excel and hit their day job out of the park. So you always have to be careful. You don't lose sight of the job you're hired for. Um, And then I I always say you can find opportunities to stretch and it might mean you're you're putting an extra uh, effort, more hours in, but you're not going to regret it because it's gonna increase your visibility. It's gonna broaden your experience. And there is, no instance where I regret taking on an area in all of the companies, even though it was not my day job, because you'll find that it will pay dividends in the future because you will be exposed to issues and people and areas that you would otherwise not if you were just doing your day job. Now, everyone loves a promotion, but I understand that when you were there, you actually turned down a promotion. And that ultimately advanced your career. So tell me how that works. I think I was there for a good six and a half years before there was ever any consideration of um, giving me a promotion because I also worked at B of A through the Great Recession. So you can imagine the trials and tribulations of working at at B of A at the time. Um, So there was a period of time after one of the acquisitions where I was running um, uh, uh, all of the issues and essentially doing not just a second day job, but a third day job uh, without getting a promotional or a new title change. And they finally decided, they came to me and they said, you know what, it's time, we've got budget, uh, you know, we'd like you to consider applying for this associate general counsel role, you're going to lead a team of three to five. Uh, but the only caveat is you have to turn, you have to walk away from another part of your, you know, third day job. It's the coverage of the CFO group. And I remember thinking about it and knowing what actually energizes me and keeps me happy and, and intellectually you know, stimulated. And I went back to them and I said, no, I'll take it if you let me keep my CFO group coverage. And they said, you can't do that. You know, you've got to go one way or the other. And I said, you know what, then no, thank you. 
I know what makes me happy, what, um, what the impact is in terms of that other coverage area. So thank you, but I will decline being considered. And I didn't take the job. I went back to so the, the So the promotion you waited six and a half years for, <clears throat> you actually turned down when it, when it was offered to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but for good reason. For good reason. I knew yeah. that long-term, it was not going to be a role, notwithstanding the fact that I would have a team, I would have an associate general counsel managing director role. It just wasn't going to keep me fulfilled professionally. And I, I decided that was not the right fit for me. So it was, a, it was a higher job in the hierarchy, but not one that interested you nearly as much as the job you already had. So you mm-hmm. turned it down. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, and you eventually got promoted anyway, as it turns out. So did. that didn't really About hold year, you back. Less than a year later, then they came to me and they actually said, you know, you've shown so much leadership because in the meantime, I got really involved in uh, enterprise affinity networks, got really involved in the women's leadership network and built out a model uh, that actually... Uh, uh, leverage helping to give opportunity and leadership experiences for uh, high potential women who were individual contributors at the bank and coupling that with giving back to the community. So there was a nonprofit called Dress for Success and that's a global nonprofit focused on empowering women. It's not just about the wardrobe, right? And so we built a program where we partner with Bank of America locations globally and Dress for Success. And this was during the recession. We provided career coaching, all of that. I ran that program, um, also developed a lot of mentoring programs for women. And that, along with Dodd-Frank rulemaking, which was going on at the time where I had to lead teams that didn't report to me, they came to me about a year later and they said, we need, um, we need a couple of things. We need you to learn bank regulatory law. And uh, you know we're we're going to consider promoting you, even though you're an individual contributor, because you've shown leadership. Anyway, so it worked out. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, to me, that's a great uh, story about how you can develop and demonstrate leadership capabilities without actually being a people leader, because uh, a lot of in-house lawyers struggle with that when they're in a role that's defined fairly narrowly, and they look for ways to expand beyond that. The promotion may not be available, but there are other ways to achieve those goals. To your point, Larry, that is so important, especially if you work for a company where there are opportunities to expand your um, visibility, expand your network within your company, because there's so much you can do outside, whether in bar or associations or otherwise. But I I always coach um, my team members. There is so much you can do within your own company where you can lead and make an impact on employee engagement, show your leadership abilities. Also, a lot of individual contributors, they never have the opportunity to present, for instance, or um, you know, lead a, a conversation or lead a project. There are so many opportunities you can find that are not necessarily uh, substantive work related, but where you can lean in and say, let's say your company is wrestling with what a lot of companies are wrestling with right now, you know, um, uh, return to office, you know, uh, employee engagement, what's the future of work? Volunteer to lean in and help figure out what the pulse of your employee base is. There's always opportunity to go above beyond. You don't have to just be a lawyer, right? Just kind of right. your leadership. So after eight years in Charlotte, uh, after getting your promotion, you then head off to Chicago. 
So, so I went to work for BMO Financial Group. Uh, you were there for four years. And so how did that change happen? What was, what motivated that um, decision to change jobs and change company? Um, and, you tell, and also to change cities, which was probably disruptive on, on a personal and family front as well. Yeah. Uh, so it was definitely disruptive. And I look back to the and, and remember the tears from um, Max and Kate, because my son had just was finishing up freshman year in high school. My daughter was finishing up elementary school and they loved Charlotte, North Carolina. That was home to them. And the thought of uh, moving, as they called it, to the most dangerous city in the world, <laughs> and, and moving from a public high school, literally, it was like a leave it to beaver existence. Every morning, we'd watch the bus stop, and then they'd bike to the pool, right? Now we're going to move into the city, ride the subway to school. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I went because it was an amazing opportunity. I got a call um, that there was an opportunity to be uh, the, the general counsel for the U.S. Uh, uh, bank, and they were going through a lot of uh, uh, opportunities to think through uh, building a, a, a best in cl class governance structure. It was the era of the CFPB and I got the call uh, and it was a great opportunity because it was actually in retail and commercial banking. And my experience had primarily been in capital markets and regulatory uh, law for banking. Now, I understand that when you were first approached about the job, you actually told the person that you are not the right candidate. So not only did you not want to go to Charlotte when you were offered the B of A job, you, you, you turned this on before we even offered to you. So tell, so tell me about that conversation and why you said that and why it didn't really end up mattering. Yeah, that when the recruiter called, they said they talked about the job. They, and my first response was, have you have you looked at my background? Do you understand my background? I have absolutely zero, zero experience in retail and commercial banking. And she chuckled and she said, oh, yeah, I've looked at your background. I've seen what you've navigated um, uh, for you know nine years at B of A. I think you're up to the challenge. So um, I, I we continue the conversation. <laughs> so what do you think they saw in you that made you attractive to them? Because it wasn't subject matter expertise in terms of retail experience. So there was something else that they saw. I think what they saw was the broad range of experience I was able to gain in my years at B of A. And that even though I was hired first into capital markets, they saw that I had navigated all this change, you know, five significant acquisitions going from over $50 a share to $3 a share under TARP, the Dodd-Frank rulemaking. Um, I navigated a litigation portfolio after an acquisition. So they essentially said, you've really navigated all the buckets of being an in-house banking lawyer. And what we need is somebody who can actually understand the business, apply the regulatory lens and help and enable the business as a strategic partner. And, and we think you have that background and quite, and they were actually quite blunt. They said, quite frankly, if you've navigated capital markets, I think you can learn this part of banking. And they were right. It was actually, yeah. um, the only advice I got from some of my uh, mentors and sponsors at B of A was I took their advice quickly, which was, this is a big step for you. It was because I went from essentially being an individual contributor to leading the, the U.S. banking team, right, as, as the new uh, chief legal officer of U.S. banking. Um, they told me that I need to get comfortable very quickly 
not knowing all the details, but trusting my instincts and that my role was the strategic piece. And that if I got comfortable quickly uh, navigating the unknown and just trusting my judgment and that the experience I'd gained would help me, then I would be fine. And so I took that advice from my mentors. <laughs> so what made you more nervous about that job? Jumping into a relatively new field for you, although it was still banking, but a quite different sector? Mm -hmm. Or was it uh, the uh, challenges of actually leading an organization, which you had not really done before? Which part of it, or maybe neither made you nervous? I mean, how do you think about, can you transport yourself back in time and think about what made you more anxious about that change in career? Definitely managing a team. And then on top of that, learning a new company and building relationships with a new uh, leadership team. But it sounds like it all went well. I mean, yeah, it sounds like, uh, did, uh, like did, it, did that part come naturally or did you have to work at it? No. And actually, I should tell you a little bit of the backdrop. So um, coincidentally, while this was all happening, a few months earlier, I had actually uh, participated in the PABA in-house general counsel mentorship program. And uh, Wendy Sheba had been my first mentor that I met several years earlier when I went to my first Napaba conference, where I think my dreams and aspirations changed when I saw, met somebody like you and Wendy and Ivan. Anyway, she coached me to apply for uh, the mentorship program and asked me to be bold. And I, I, I think I literally said in my application, I I would love to have a mentor who had experience in the government perhaps uh, heading up a, an agency as well as uh, a public company city. And so Ivan became a mentor. And he, I think we must have had two or three sessions and this opportunity came up and he immediately then coached me through the interview process, gave me advice. Uh, he even gave me advice in terms of um, uh, compensation counsel and how to think through uh, my package. And I remember... Uh, when I landed at BMO, he, he was so thoughtful. He, he sent me uh, a binder of articles of relevance for a general counsel and a note of advice. And he coached me that it was going to be one of the loneliest jobs probably uh, I could envision and that there was always, uh, there were GCs to call for advice. So he and, and Don Liu, early days, I remember having silly questions and I would just send them a note saying, hey, do you have a moment? And the two of them would be behind the scenes helping me navigate. Now, did you find leading and managing a team, um, did that come naturally to you? Um, were you just instinctively kind of right there with th those responsibilities or did you have to work at it? And were, or were there elements of that that you had to work at that were not necessarily so natural to you? Certainly doesn't come natural to me, but I actually had the benefit because of my years working with the Women's Leadership Network at Bank of America. I had the benefit of maybe about seven years of uh, going through programs where I learned some of the best practices of leadership, uh, had the benefit of going through some coaching as well as psychometrics to kind of understand myself first. So then I could see how I could lead. So that coupled with when I joined BMO, it was also similar to B of A. They really focused on talent development. And so they supported me from the beginning. Um, they uh, had me connect with their talent development team. They would actually um, give me opportunities to 
learn all of the leadership best practices as well as check in with me and give me the tools uh, to improve engagement. And so one of the goals they asked was for me to help the team navigate, you know, most companies, you're not going to have huge headcount increases, right? So you have to always learn how to uh, do less, uh, more with less, but you also want to build a pipeline of talent. And so early days, I told my um, team that all my direct reports who are deputy GCs, they were going to be evaluated first and foremost for their ability to lead, enable, uh, empower, and build a succession uh, bench. And that it was table stakes, and I assumed they were great lawyers, but that was not what they were going to be evaluated um, first and foremost for. And so that was kind of a pivot and uh, took a lot of time thinking through and meeting one-on-one with all of my lawyers, all the way uh, to the most junior lawyers, where I would ask their feedback about what energized them, where did they see themselves two years from now? Um, And then that helped me actually see the talent. And and the last thing I did, and I do this in every company, is I really focus on eliminating silos and information sharing, because I think if if you're an in-house lawyer, and you're too siloed, you're never going to see the end-to-end perspective and you won't grow as a lawyer. So that's always been my focus. And this time around, I'm doing the exact same thing. Um, and, and that's, I think, how you can actually see the talent and you can also keep on building your uh, succession bench. So Caroline, one of the, I think one of the most important things in, in developing a team and leading a team is, is providing kind of honest feedback mm-hmm. to your team members. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes that message is can be very tough. Um, how easy did you find it to do that uh, earlier in your career versus later in your career? Because I think that's one of the most challenging things a manager has to do. Yeah. So did that come naturally to you or not? <laughs> no, I think it's probably, I, I, I can't think of anyone I've met who will say that's one of the favorite things I have to do as a people manager. But what yeah. I have learned is it is so much easier to do that if you push yourself to give real-time feedback. If you give real-time feedback, and and let's say you want to give feedback to a team member who gave a presentation and something went offside, right, or a conversation went offside, it's much more helpful for the person you're giving that feedback to to have that conversation that day versus you wait a month or two when it's time for a quarterly performance management review and you say, oh, remember that conversation, you know? And so um, that's one thing I've learned. Um, The other piece is feedback resonates more if you actually set expectations as a leader as to the behaviors um, that you want and expect from your leaders. And that as leaders, anyone who reports to you is looking at you as a leader and how you react to situations um, uh, and how you behave. And so I always set expectations from a leadership perspective that these are the types of uh, behaviors um, that I expect from the team. And that as you model those behaviors and as the leadership team, you're, you're, uh, you're consistent in that, then, it, then, then the conversations become easier because you tie back your, your feedback to the the behaviors you expect and what your vision is uh, for your legal department. By the way, I could not agree with you more that giving real-time feedback 
in the context of a work assignment is much more meaningful and, and compared to abstract year-end feedback feels a lot less personal. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I think it's actually digested more easily. So I, I, I could not agree with you more. So four years at BMO, then you continue heading west, you know, from Charlotte to Chicago, and then from Chicago to Denver, to Western Union. And that was your first public company GC role. So a lot of people struggle with how to make that leap because it almost seems like an impossible leap to go from a non-public company GC job to a public company GC job. And they feel like not having that is an impediment. So how did you clear that hurdle? And how difficult was that for you? Uh, so not an easy uh, uh, opportunity to secure. But for me, even though I always aspired at that time to become a public company general counsel, I never lost sight of the fact that it really is a two-way interview. And if I think back to every single in-house opportunity uh, I chose, first and foremost, I needed to believe in the company's strategy. And secondly, every single company I've joined, there's also an element of um, the impact a company uh, has in the communities they serve. And there's also a focus on the culture and and does this company believe in the power of diversity? Um, And then thirdly, most importantly, you've got to have that fit uh, with the executive team and kind of have that simpatico. If you don't have all three, then it's not the right role for you, um, is the way I've always analyzed an opportunity. Yeah. I mean, one of the things we've, we've talked about too is that when, when someone looks at a resume like yours and they see all of the progressions that are happening and they're impressed by each step that's taken and each larger job that's, that comes along, what they don't see are the roads not taken. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are the interviews that didn't go well, the jobs that one didn't get offered or the jobs one did not pursue for one reason or another. Um, so talk a little bit about that because it goes to your point about making sure that the thing you take is actually suitable for you and it's gonna actually fulfill your, 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 your ambitions and be uh, something which is gonna fit your temperament and for, mm-hmm. fit uh, your aspirations because not all jobs necessarily meet those requirements. Absolutely, so it, I think looking back in 2017, so I started at Western Union uh, and December 1st of 2017. And I, that was a year for the first time I actually uh, had to reach out to be considered for GC's opportunities. And I ended up interviewing with three other financial services companies. In fact, thinking back, every single one of them were bigger companies. They were all Fortune 500, a couple of them are Fortune 200. And if you think back to the three elements I looked at, I'm sure from the company's perspective, one of the most important pieces is also fit, cultural fit. Um, So I will say those three um, opportunities that I went through the interview process and, uh, and going through that actually prepared me to one, know exactly what I was looking for once I secured my first general counsel opportunity. And secondly, more importantly, it kind of reinforced to me, it's important to really uh, have that feeling, that kind of kind of instinct, this is the right move for me. And if it's not, 
to take a pause and wait for that opportunity, even if it's a public GC opportunity, um, because it, you know, it's, it's a two-way interview. Yeah. So without naming names, I mean, give, give me an example of the kind of question you can ask <laughs> in the interviewing process yeah. that will help you kind of figure out mm-hmm. the culture of the company and whether or not it's going to suit you. Mm-hmm. So most of the interviews, uh, at least the rounds I went through, you're going to have the opportunity to meet with the CEO, the CFO. Oftentimes, depending on the company, you might meet with um, two or three of the um, uh, executive team members who lead business segments. Um, And of course, you'll meet with the chief people officer. Uh, And for me, you know, it's really hard. First of all, it is so much prep. Yeah, basically, if you're going to do it right, you're, you're going to have to read everything that's public about the company, listen to investor calls, and really come in informed about the company. But in terms of getting the pulse of the culture of the company, I hate to say this, it's really hard unless you know somebody in the company. And so my... Uh, well, it, it helps to have a spy, but one does, <laughs> often doesn't have one. Yeah, you oftentimes don't have a spy. So, so you're going to have to try to figure out, well, how do I figure out how this leadership team functions and what's the true culture of the company, right? Um, so I would uh, always focus on simple questions that I would actually ask every single team member about the CEO. I'd say, well, how would you describe the leadership style of, ex- of, of you, know, uh, you know, so-and-so? And I always listened carefully to see if there was consistency in the response and to the extent there was, that that would um, inform me. And there was one instance where it actually wasn't consistent or they wouldn't respond. <laughs> um, so I find that question very informative. I would also, you know, for me, if you're considering a general counsel opportunity, you want to see the value of the general counsel. You, you know, uh, Ben Heinemann's book talks about the guardian strategic and enabler tension. And depending on the company you're joining, you ha- you want to have a sense of how the, the, the general counsel is going to be perceived, right, relative to the other executive team members. And I would oftentimes ask the question, what's on your wish list of opportunities for the new general counsel? What's, what's, what's your evaluation of the law department? And those questions, coupled with the executive team leadership child would give me a sense of whether this was a company uh, I wanted to join because I'm sure you you wrestled with this, Larry. When, when you join a company, you want to make sure you're joining a company where um, you're valued as a, as a general counsel and a leader of the legal department, right? Yep. So, Carol, I, I remember actually meeting you in New York at an APABA function before you took the Western Union job. Uh, and it was it was a workshop to to ha- sort of prepare potential GC candidates for larger roles. Um, it was a day long session where we did mock uh, interviews and we had Q and A's and and did other kinds of uh, training sessions. I mean, how important are things like that to so prepare one important. for the process? Incredibly important. I am. I can't. I can't overstate. <laughs> how I had the benefit of the Napaba family. I think, I think the workshop was called Napaba 2020 workshop, right? Right. But that session, I recall, was all about um, 
how you are, how you made presentations and actually used your hands, I think. <laughs> and I remember, I, I remember we were partnered with different uh, yeah, pipeliners and we would have to videotape each other and then critique each other. Uh, and it was very awkward for me uh, using my hands. Um, but what I love most about those sessions, you've got to commit to attending them because it's usually one or two days. And even if your company won't sponsor your travel, then invest in yourself because those are the conversations and the tips that will help you um, move to the next level. And it's not going to be given to you in your, you know, in your current uh, day job. It's that coaching, that one-on-one, -on -one, how to navigate an interview, how to present yourself, invaluable, amazing. Um, yeah, and, and I think it's also a safe place where you can make a mistake, mm -hmm. you can stumble, mm -hmm. and actually learn from that in, in a very cost-free way. Mm -hmm. So tell us about your new job that you started, I think, what, less than two months ago? Yeah. Uh, so it's brand new. Tell us about the company and tell us about your role and tell us about um, what led to this yet other change to another big public company GC role for you. So uh, lots of fun, never a dull moment. Um, I was really excited this opportunity because I've worked in financial services pretty much my whole career. Um, but this is the first opportunity where it, it's technically a technology company slash fintech, but it is this company that to me, from a strategic perspective, I thought, wow, what an opportunity to join a global company and kind of sync together my experience in, 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 in banking, uh, capital markets. There's a segment I'm, I, I don't have great expertise in. It's called merchant and e-commerce and knitting together all that experience along with what I learned at Western Union in terms of all things digital and technology. Uh, we learned so much from the pandemic. So when this opportunity came, I thought, what a perfect opportunity. Because I have to confess, Larry, there have been days and years, and my mentors know this. I oftentimes say, how cool would it be to pivot and change industries? Mm. Um, and I've always had that kind of thought in my mind. And um, at the end of the day, I love complexity. And I find financial services, the complexity and the ability a lawyer can uh, can, the, the role we can play to help impact the business and drive innovation. There's just really no other industry that knits that together for me. And so it was a perfect opportunity for me. Uh, and we're facing so much disruption. Uh, so that's why I chose to come. From living on a chicken farm in Brazil to you know managing thousands of employees across the globe, to walking the halls of Capitol Hill to lobby on complex regulatory issues. Um, this is not a bad outcome for <laughs> someone who is self-described as being severely or even painfully shy uh, in, in your earlier life. So um, tell me about that part uh, of that journey, You know how you overcome this shyness to get to where you've gotten to today. That could not have been easy. No, you know, I think my answer would be to those who are shy or introverts. First of all, I'm, I will forever be an introvert. <laughs> but I think um, a couple of things. I, I think I grew out of that just pure necessity. I had to. Um, I, I took a break between um, 
undergrad in law school. I worked while my husband uh, went and finished his uh, degree. And one of the jobs I took required me to actually present to thousands, uh, across a thousand. I was a college recruiter for MSU. And I also had to coordinate all of these networking functions, uh, which had to get me out of my comfort zone. So you had the presenting to thousands and the small talk, right? Which was even more scary. And I learned little tips, like if you don't like going to a cocktail reception, actually easier to go early when you can start the conversation versus coming in late when there's 30 different conversations and you have to put yourself into a conversation. It was Apparently, I thought you were going to say go early and leave early. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I learned that quickly. I would also say you just have to make yourself do it. And you just, the more you do it, um, the more it becomes um, easy. I remember my the first time I had to present to a, uh, a college night, and it was 1,500 parents, my my boss at the time said, it's okay, Caroline, if you know your substance and you know your talking points, you're going to be okay. And he told me, when you walk out, I'm going to be in the back of the room, you just look at me, and you're just talking to one person, just look at me, and it worked. Um, so those are some tips. Make no mistake, I hate public speaking. I hate being even this, it's <laughs> being the, the sole focus. I, it will never be something I say, absolutely, I want to do it. Not my favorite thing. <laughs> um, so let, let's, let's talk about um, your experience as a diverse female in, um, in the profession. You grew up in quite diverse communities, uh, your childhood in Queens, Cardo Benjamin Cardozo High School, very diverse community. I would suspect even university and law schools were fairly diverse compared to the industry you eventually joined and the profession you joined, uh, which is far less so. So tell, tell me a little bit about your experience navigating this profession and this industry you know, as a diverse female executive. Absolutely. I think there were parts of being female as well as being Asian American that I had to navigate. Starting off uh, in DC, I was one of three uh, Asian American female associates and the only one uh, in transactional uh, work. And then when I went in-house at B of A, um, I often thought about um, all the opportunities in banking where if you look at management and leadership ranks, there's still a lot of opportunity uh, for women and, and, and for broader diversity. From a female perspective, I would say, if I look back, it's interesting how women have had to navigate different journeys. Uh, when I compare and contrast some of the, uh, uh, you know, the generation of female partners that I often looked at, you know, oftentimes they had to make tough choices um, many of them, I, I felt, didn't have that ability or option that they didn't believe where they could have both family, try to come up with some kind of work-life juggle, and have an incredible career. And oftentimes, that then impacted how they mentored and set expectations, quite frankly, for women. And so uh, I found that to be a curious observation. I remembered when I went in-house, and I now had this incredible uh, a group of women who were trying to coach us to be leaders, they had a different approach, which was we're from a different generation. We can try to navigate all of this. Um, and 
it was a really different perspective I gained early on going in-house. And then from an Asian American perspective, for me, um, it was very eye-opening when I attended my first NAPABA. I actually had never seen an Asian American general counsel. And for me to even see that that existed, I truly believe if you don't see it, you don't believe you can be it. And so I believe that in order to bring along change, you've got to have um, programs like this um, because that will actually help the new generation understand what their true potential is and what they can be. And then um, secondly, I would say um, in terms of the experience of being Asian American, what I've always followed is you've got to be your authentic self. One of my mentors once said to me um, this quote that you've got to be yourself and everyone else is taken. And when you're in a room where oftentimes, especially in banking, I was the only female and the only Asian American, it can be difficult to be yourself. Sometimes you're coached to do X, Y, and Z because that's just how you should be. And I always stood firm that it just wouldn't be me. Um, and that I had to actually be myself. And, and that would be my advice to, to everyone. You've got to be yourself um, because that's the only way you're going to be an authentic leader and how you're going to be happy with yourself, right? So that would be my advice. Well, Caroline, um, I want to wish you well in your new uh, job and new role. And uh, hopefully the commuting will settle down after a while. Um, so let me let me end with this question. When, when you have downtime, when you can pull away from the stresses uh, and challenges of uh, all of these commitments, what, what do you like to do to unwind? How do you find relaxation and how do you recharge? I love going for walks, uh, listening to podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> and I, I just love to cook. So my favorite thing to do on a Saturday or Sunday morning is I wake up early, go for a walk, go and get my groceries and, and I'm a homebody and I will just spend the day cooking. That's my favorite thing to do. And, and, um, a, a good weekend, uh, it involves both a good walk and a good meal. <laughs> so is, is there a particular Chinese dish that you would like to be able to make that you might still be working on, but you haven't quite gotten there yet? Yeah. I regret not, um, uh, learning all the, the, you know how to, they're called zongzi. They're, they're, they're sticky rice wrapped in um, leaves. I can't oh. get the wrapping done. So I just make sticky rice without it being wrapped. Um, but that's actually my, my new focus, making sure I learn all of the family traditions uh, uh, from, uh, from my family members, right? Because I, I did a lot of cooking uh, with other cuisines because I kind of shied away from mastering these uh, uh, Chinese uh, uh, dishes, but that's my new area of focus. <laughs> well, the dish I'm working on is thousand layer cake. Ooh, which, which I've not awesome. not succeeded, yeah. but I'll keep working at yeah. that. But uh, but I am proud that I finally uh, mastered you know homemade Chinese dumplings, of course. So so that I can eat every day. <laughs> Caroline, thank you so much for your time, and uh, again, good luck on your and congratulations on your, on your new role, and uh, I wish you the best. Thanks, Larry.